0: Production of The Sound of Young America is supported in part by Ask MetaFilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com. This episode of The Sound of Young America is part of our annual Max Fun Drive. You know those people who usually kick off The Sound of Young America? The ones who say that the show is supported by listeners just like you? Well, they are listener supporters of our program. They went to MaximumFund.org slash donate and put their money where their mouth was to support this show. We'll have more information about the Max Fund Drive later, but know that you can donate now at MaximumFund.org slash donate. Let's have some fun. I'm Jesse Thorne. Live on tape from my house in Los Angeles, it's the sound of young America from MaximumFund.org and PRI, Public Radio International. I'm tempted to say that my next guest needs no introduction, except that it occurs to me now that this is the radio and you can't see him. He's Weird Al Yankovic, probably the greatest song parodist of all time. He sold more than 12 million records, and now he has a brand new book called When I Grow Up for Kids that was a New York Times bestseller. His new record comes out in the summer, and it's such an honor to have him on The Sound of Young America. Weird Al, welcome to the show. I appreciate that. Thank you. I hope that that, that ramp up was suitable. I... I You impressed me. Okay. I'm excited to be here. Good. Good. I, I know. I mean, it's it's got to be fun to be you. I got to tell you. Um, I, I want to talk to you. Why, why don't we start by talking a little bit about your childhood? Um I know that you were, you went into school early and then skipped a grade early on in elementary school. So you ended up spending much of your childhood two years ahead of your age peers and two years younger than your grade peers. That's a good way to put it. (laughs) No, it's a terrible way to put it. It was totally baffling. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> People are driving their cars on the freeway right now trying to do arith- arithmetic. I, I know what you were talking about, and that's the main thing. Okay, so uh, you, you like double skipped.
1: Yeah, uh, which means that I, I, for example, if you're doing the math, I started high school when I was 12 years old and I graduated when I was uh, 16. Actually, did I start when I was 11? I graduated when I was 16. I, I know that much for sure. Uh, and, you know, I, I would say maybe that maybe uh, made me a little bit less comfortable with my peers or maybe felt more out of sorts. But um, in, in all honesty, I I think uh, even if we were the same age, <laughs> I would still have been the odd man out. I would still have been the, the ner- nerdy kid that uh, didn't quite fit in anywhere. So it probably made very little difference, the fact that I was two years uh, younger than most of my peers in school.
0: Do you, do you, really, th- do you really think that's the case? I know I, rem- I remember when I was in elementary school and there was talk of changing what grade I would go into. And my folks vetoed it based on the fact that they were worried that it would be weird, basically
1: yeah I, th- I think that's probably a conversation that my folks had at, at some point, and then uh you know well, these are the same people that decided I should take accordion lessons, so I
0: don't think <laughs> they worried too much about me fitting in so did you did you like playing the accordion? I mean I know that you're I know that it was your parents' idea um did you did you did it was it appealing to you <laughs> you know I didn't see
1: anything wrong with it, probably when I was seven years old, it seemed like a you know uh an okay enough uh, idea at the time. I mean, I was playing uh, uh, classical pieces and, and polkas, of course, and, and you know, standard compositions, uh, uh, traditional songs. Um, and it seemed perfectly logical to me that I would take accordion lessons. It wasn't really in- until I hit my early teenage years and I wanted to actually play with my other friends that played musical instruments that I realized I was being ostracized. And for some crazy reason, they didn't want an accordion playing in their, in their band. So uh, that's when I first realized that, you know, the accordion maybe is not the hippest instrument in uh, contemporary America. Did you
0: Did you reject it as a teenager at any point?
1: Well, I, I stopped taking lessons after about three years, so around age 10 or so, I decided I was just going to, you know, I don't know if it was because I was tired of it or I just felt like I could learn better on my own, but I just kind of set it aside for a few years, and then I picked it up again uh, a little bit later, um, just for fun, um, to, to play along with the songs on the radio. I, I could play by ear pretty well, uh, and I, I remember I used to have Elton John's "Good Goodbye Yeldick Road album completely memorized, and I could play it on the accordion. Uh, and my friends just thought this was hilarious. They just, for some reason, thought there was some humor in the juxtaposition of accordion music and, and rock music, which is something that I've, you know,
0: carried on in my oeuvre to this day. When you, when you were like 15, 16 years old, um, did you want to make music that was funny or did you want to make music that rocked and would make you a cool rock and roll guy?
1: I don't think I ever had any aspirations to be cool. I thought that was sort of out of the question. You know, uh, I just wanted to amuse my friends. Um, And again, I never really thought I'd ever make a living doing this. I probably had my rock star fantasies like every other kid that sings into their hairbrush in a bathroom mirror. Um, But, you know, it was always just for grins. Um, Yeah, I I think maybe I went through a stage which lasted about 20 minutes where I was like trying to write, you know, a serious rock song or a serious pop song. And I wrote some just execrable <laughs> lyrics and I looked at them and said, no, this isn't going to work. My brain is too warped to, uh, to take this seriously. I have to kind of follow my muse, which was kind of just to do demented music.
0: When did this now you use the phrase demented music, which is the descriptor for the music that was played on the Dr. Demento radio show, um, which was a popular syndicated FM radio show that was... Sort of a clearinghouse for every type of novelty song and piece of funny music. Um, when did you first hear that show? I think when I was
1: maybe about 12 years old, uh, a friend of mine turned me to. and said, there's a show that's on KMET, Los Angeles, uh, FM station in LA, Sunday nights, four hours, he plays nothing but like weird, funny, crazy music. And I thought, well, that's right up my alley. And uh, I started listening and uh, I was immediately hooked. Um, It went on a little bit past my bedtime. So after lights were out, I would have the uh, alarm clock radio under the covers, you know, and I'd be listening to the the Funny Five or the Top Ten and... uh, It was. uh, I listened to it religiously. I mean, it really was an important part of my life. And um, after a while, my friends were saying, "Well, why don't you, you know, why don't you record your own stuff and send it into the show?" And I thought, "Well, I could do that." Uh, And so I recorded myself singing along with my accordion, uh, just on a little tiny cassette tape recorder uh, in my bedroom. I think I uh, it was (laughs) the cassette for like three for a dollar. I mean, there was just even even the stock was cheap. Um, But I sent them to the Doctor Demello show, and to my Utter amazement, he played those songs on the radio. Um, I, I just could not fathom this, <laughs> this was happening. It was like just this the stuff that I had just recorded in my bedroom was now being heard by
0: uh, the whole listenership of the Dr. Domeno show. <laughs> I want to play a little bit of one of the first songs that you sent to Dr. Demento. This is a song called Belvedere Cruisin'. You have that? Wow. Um, the internet, my friend. Oh, yes. Everything's on the internet. It's amazing. Yeah. How old were you when you recorded this song and sent it in? I was either 15 or 16, I think. Wow. Well, let's hear a little bit of my guest Weird Al Yankovic in his very first song, Belvedere Cruisin'. Hear that song or think about that song? Do you feel like you, you recognize a voice or, or a person that you later became as an artist? Everything has gone
1: downhill since Belvedere Cruise. I, <laughs> I was so raw. That was so punk. You know, it was so feral and so intense. I I don't think I've ever matched that intensity.
0: <laughs> but but sincerely, I mean that that is really I think the theme of that song. You know, it's, it's a song about... Um, it's a
1: love song about my parents' car, which, <laughs> you know, I, I think every, every artist has one of those songs in their catalog.
0: It's, it's also a song that has, I think, a classic Weird Al juxtaposition, which is essentially fronting like you're cool in the way that popular music does, and that being sort of reality-checked by something very banal. That's, again, a very nice way to put that. Yes. <laughs> Let's go with that. <laughs> speaking, speaking of songs that have that theme, I, I want to play a little bit of your first big Dr. Demento hit, uh, which is a song called Another One Rides the Bus. Okay.
2: Riding in the bus down the boulevard and the pace was pretty packed. Yeah. But a see so I had to stand with a perverse in the back. It was melting like, like a locker room. There was just Another One Rides the Bus uh. Another One Rides the Bus uh. And another comes on And
0: another comes on Tell me a little bit about how you recorded this record. Uh, that was...
1: Uh, another One Rides the Bus was written uh, very, very quickly. I think um this it was actually over a weekend... Uh, where I went on a, uh, on a uh, camping trip, actually, with Dr. Demento and, and a couple other friends. We'd actually become friends uh, during my high school years because I would send him recordings, and he'd play them, and we'd developed a bit of a relationship. Um, and uh, he invited me and I think uh, our friends Beefalo Bill and Damascus and other other people who had been friends of the Dr. Demento show. to go on a little trip, and um, over that weekend, I, I think I dashed off the lyrics in like 20 minutes because the Queen song was a big hit on the radio. Uh, and I thought, oh, maybe he'll let me play the this, this song on his show that Sunday night. And I told him about it and he said, yeah, well, we'll have you debut during the uh, the, the top 10. Uh, so I had my accordion with me uh, during the show. I uh, got ready to play and I said, anybody wants to make any funny noises while I'm playing, you'll feel free. Musical mic, you can do your hand flatulence sounds and everybody else just like do whatever. I think we maybe practiced it once out in the hallway. And there was this guy that said, "Hey, you know, I, I'm a drummer. I, I could bang on your accordion case." And I said, "Yeah, that, that's great." Uh, so uh, Dr. Mill introduced me, Alfred Yankovic and his magic accordion, or however it was, and he turned on the mics, and, uh, and we did another one ride the bus. A couple miles ago, but
2: I couldn't get to the door. There isn't any room for me to breathe. Now we're going pick up more yeah. Another and one rise the rise. bus Another one rides the bus, and another comes on, and another comes on. Another one rides the bus. Hey, he's gonna sit by you.
1: Another one rides the bus. And uh, I didn't think anything of of it other than yeah, that went pretty well. And then I went back off to college because I was I think nineteen years nineteen years old at the time, and I was just on on break from from school. Went back to college, and about a week later, my roommate. Uh, was telling me, oh, when I get back from class on it, he'd say, you know, there were some messages for you on the phone. There's some radio station in New Zealand that wants a copy of Another One Rides the Bus. And I was getting <laughs> all these crazy messages from all around the world, people trying to figure out how to get a copy of the song. Because it was on the Dr. Mayo Show, which was syndicated nationally. But, you know, the song really took on a life of its own. It, it was viral in the days before things went viral, I mean, people were just, you know, desperate to get a copy of this thing. Um, so that was that was the beginning of it. It, it came out uh, eventually, gosh, s- several months after the fact, after the uh, bloom was uh, far off the rose. But um didn't quite get out in time to, to make any kind of real splash.
0: So the question that I want to ask you about that whole scenario that you just described is what is it like to go on a camping trip with Dr. Demento and the stable of artists from the Dr. <laughs> Demento show, when you're like 19 years old and everyone else is, I'm sure, roughly the same age. Maybe there's like some 43-year-old guys that record on their ham radio. I'm trying to figure out what this scenario is like. Well, Dr. Demento was the uh,
1: the oldest guy there. I mean, most most of us that were answering phones and hanging out were... Uh, I think probably college age or in, mid-twenties, so uh, it was a fairly young group, actually. Um, uh, Dr. Mennon did, did not wear his top hat when he was camping. That's about, <laughs> about the only time you'll see him without his top hat. Um, I don't remember much about the weekend. I, I think we did, Gosh, I don't, don't even remember where it was. Somewhere in Southern California, we just went out to a cabin someplace and went hiking, so that was about it.
0: I'm just imagining, like, time to barbecue some wieners! <laughs> <laughs> woo! 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 In a crazy <laughs> Dr. Timento <Dr>. voice. <laughs> He was a guest once on The Sound of Young American, a very nice man. Yes, yes, he is. What was the point that these dalliances in recording and performing became an earnest attempt at building a career that could pay your bills?
1: Probably not until after I graduated from college. Um, Well, I proceeded to try to, you know, take a shot at getting a bona fide record deal. And it was a period of a couple of years where, you know, uh, I knocked on a lot of doors and, uh, uh, sent a lot of tapes around, uh, and the the general response was, "Oh, this is really funny. You are very clever, and yeah, you know this you know, it's, it's possibly even genius, but you know we're not interested because this is novelty music. And if you are lucky, maybe you'll have a, another hit single or something. But we're looking for people, you know, to have long careers, and you know this, you know this is just not the genre that we want to be involved
0: with." What were you listening to in the nineteen eighties uh, when you were first building your career?
1: I've always been kind of drawn to, well, of course, like there's the Dr. Domeno artist, which which inspired me in the first place, but uh, I was, uh, in terms of contemporary artists, I was really inspired by the whole uh, new wave scene, which was, I guess it's more like late 70s, but but uh, the, the B-52s and Devo and Oingo Boingo, Talking Heads, things like that. Uh, and that, that kind of carried over into the 80s a bit as well. But yeah, anything that was a little quirky and left to center, I, I took a lot of inspiration from that.
0: This was a time when the music landscape was really changing a lot um, just as it had in the 1970s, with the sort of advent of FM album-oriented rock radio, it was changing the 1980s into a, a world that was uh, driven by uh, new radio formats and also MTV that had video. Um, what was the first like real studio-produced attempt that you made that really worked? The, the first album uh, that we did was done
1: on Speck. Uh, it was uh, produced by Rick Derringer, and I should probably explain how that came about. Um, I, I, was, I get permission when I do the parodies, and, and one of the parodies that I was uh, recording was uh, a parody of Joan Jett's hit, uh, I Love Rock and Roll.
0: Which, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, was I Love Rocky Road. That is
1: correct, sir. Now, that was a cover version for her. That was originally done by a group called The Arrows. And uh, one of the gentlemen in the Arrows who also co-wrote the song was Jay Cooker, who happened to be Rick Derringer's manager.
2: I hear those ice cream bells and I start to drool. Keep a couple quarts in my locker at school. Yeah, but chocolate's getting old. Vanilla just leaves me cold. There's just one flavor good enough for me. Yeah, me. Don't give me no crummy teaspoon, I know what I need. Baby, I love Rocky Road. So won't you go and buy a half a gallon? Baby, I love Rocky Road. So have another triple scope with
0: me. Oh, was that was that your first genuine real life radio smash? Well, uh, there was a, a
1: demo of that song that came out before the album. It's sort of like we were trying to get we, – we, the al- the, we recorded the first album on spec very, very quickly, very cheaply, and mm, I would say sort of poorly. <laughs> but, but you no, know, it was a product of, of its time. Um, but we had the, uh, the demo of the song, which we kind of leaked to Los Angeles radio, and it actually got a fair amount of airplay on a couple of the top 40 stations and we, we used that exposure to create the buzz that would you know we hoped would get us a record deal and again you know we were still having a tough time from uh, all the record companies they all thought that you know this was novelty this is not something we want to dirty our hands with and finally uh, a company called Scotty Brothers decided they would take a shot at it
0: More with Weird Al Yankovic after a break. It's The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org and PRI. Public Radio International. The Sound of Young America and MaximumFun.org are proud sponsors of the third annual Women in Comedy Festival in Boston, Massachusetts, March 9th through 13th. The third annual festival features Kristen Schaal performing in her hilarious sketch comedy duo with Kurt Brownholler. It also features close friend of MaximumFun.org, Jen Kirkman, past guest on both Jordan Jesse Go and The Sound of Young America, and the very funny Morgan Murphy. Shows take place all over Boston, and the goal is to create a place for people to experience the comedic expression of women, see strong female performers, and above all, be entertained. They book some really great comics. For more information on the festival and how to get tickets, you can visit Women in Comedy Festival.com. That's www.womenincomedyfestival.com. in com. Hey guys, it's me, Jesse. You know, the Sound of Young America really is supported by your donations. We say that at the top of every show. And at the top of every show, when I listen to it, when I'm walking the dog or whatever, I wonder if that really gets through, (laughs) if it makes it through that headphone cable and through those earphones and into your brain as actual words with meaning rather than just a sort of little musical song that precedes every Sound of Young America episode. Direct donations from podcast listeners make up the vast majority of our budget at MaximumFun.org. They're what pay Nick to edit the show and pay Julia to produce the show and pay me to host the show and do all of the other stuff that all three of us do here at Fund. I bet that you like The Sound of Young America. I am basing that on the fact that this is a podcast, and so there's no one listening to it accidentally. Everyone who's listening had to go into iTunes and click on subscribe and then decide not to click on unsubscribe when they heard the darn show. I hear all the time from people who say things like The Sound of Young America is where I hear about all my favorite stuff, or The Sound of Young America is the only show that uh, respects the comedians that I really love, or really goes in depth with musicians that i admire i hear all kinds of stuff from sound of young america fans about what it means to them so what i'm asking you to do is consider what the sound of young america means to you and not just the sound of young america but all of our shows at MaximumFun.org. is this the kind of thing that you think should be supported if so maybe you should be the one supporting it We've got all kinds of great thank you gifts and stuff, and I'll be back with my beautiful wife, the development director, Teresa Thorne, in a little bit to tell you about them. But for now, think about how much you care about The Sound of Young America and Maximum Fun, and think about visiting MaximumFun.org slash donate. Let's get back to the show. It's The Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is pop music's greatest parodist, Um, and perhaps the most successful purveyor of of funny music of all time, Weird Al Yankovic. It's great to have you on the show. Great to be here. Thank you so much for doing this. Your albums are uh, often roughly half uh, original compositions and, and half parody songs. Um, usually with a polka medley thrown in. Um, and I want to play one of your earlier or successful original compositions, which is called Biggest Ball of Twine in Minnesota. Okay.
2: Well, I had two weeks of vacation time coming After working all year down at Big Roy's Heating and Plumbing So one night when my family and I Were gathered round the dinner table I said, kids, if you could go anywhere In this great big you like to go to? He said, "Dad, we want to see the biggest ball of twine in Minnesota. They pick the biggest ball of twine in Minnesota."
0: This is another. This is another one of your tunes. This one, an original that is um, that is about that sense of kind of suburban banality. I wonder how you felt about that in a time when in the, in the early and mid-1980s when there was sort of this buzz of satire of that, like attacks upon that uh, that was left over from punk rock in part, um, and also uh, an ironic celebration of camp. Which was, at the time, just kind of making it into the mainstream.
1: Right. I mean, there was certainly a lot of, uh, I mean, you can read a lot into my my, my body of work. I, I think the irony plays a lot into it. And certainly the, there's, an, there's, a, uh, uh, there's a theme uh, running through my songs of uh, uh, celebrating banality, um, which, which I just c- kind of wanted to, you know, I'm sort of uh, alternative music as it is. Uh, but, you know, everybody else was writing songs about love and and loftier themes. And, uh, you know, I thought that to, to stand out, I could be writing songs about love. Lunch meat, <laughs> and or, or or twine balls, or what, whatever the case may be, and just just celebrating uh, the minutiae of everyday life.
0: I was thinking of I was thinking of Eat It, which was uh, I'm 29, so that was a big that was a big thing in my childhood. Eat It, uh, both Beat It and Eat It. I worshipped Michael Jackson, and I loved Eat It. And I was thinking about how that is just simply about the simplest thing it could possibly be about (laughs) yes
1: (laughs) i'm I'm thankful that there was no youtube in 1984 because otherwise there would have already been 10 million eat it parodies before i ever got around to it
0: it really takes this this most basic human function and just explodes it into absurd opera the absurd opera of pop music that pop music is often right I did a lot of songs about food, uh, especially
1: in the in the '80s, and I'm not really sure why. Food just seemed like a really easy thing to write <laughs> songs about. I, it, it might be a leftover from my days as a as a starving musician. <laughs> I don't know, uh, but it, it's come in handy because now, um, because I have written so many songs about food, I, I can totally write off any kind of food that I eat. Like my grocery bill, like that's a tax write off because you know I, I need it for inspiration <laughs> for my songs.
0: In the early 1990s, there was a huge push against that pop excess that you had parodied so successfully in the 1980s. The kind of, uh, you know, frivolous Debbie Gibson songs that uh, made a great target for you were suddenly the target of the songs that were on the radio as alternative rock became a huge phenomenon. Um, how did you feel about, uh, alternative rock when it sort of exploded the pop music world in, you know, 1991 or 1992? I was a big fan of alternative
1: music. I mean, I, I, uh, I was thrilled when Nirvana became a big hit. Um, when they first came on the scene, I, my first thought was, I would love to, uh, to, uh, do a parody of these guys, but you know, they're never going to be mainstream enough for me, me to, to make fun of. Uh, and then when their album went to number one, I was thrilled, and and, and, and thankfully, uh, Kurt and the guys uh, had a great sense of humor about the whole thing. But I was a, a big fan. I mean, that the '90s uh, were a great time in music. Uh, I mean, I just I like real instruments. I like guitars. I like uh, the whole DIY aesthetic, and I like uh, you know I like actual bands. Um, and that yeah, that, the 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 whole indie and alternative scene, I think was uh, was a lot of fun. And I I was not, it was great to see that you know pop culture kind of take a dip (laughs) into that uh, area for a while.
0: It's a very different aesthetic than some of those new wave bands that you talked about admiring, like Oingo Boingo or Devo, who were often, uh, who were often at their core about satirizing things about having fun and being funny, sometimes in a campy way, sometimes in a satirical way, you know, you know, various ways. Um, Alternative rock was not what you would generally describe as humorous. <laughs> well, maybe not generally, but I mean they certainly
1: had a, you know, humorous alternative bands. I mean, there there's a lot of uh, I don't want to give you a laundry list of names, but I mean, my favorite bands of the of the time were well, just add one example, uh, the Presidents of the United States of America. I mean, they're part of the Seattle scene, part of the alternative scene. But, you know, there's certainly a lot of humor in their songs. And, again, a lot of their uh, material was celebrating banality, much like uh, like my material was. So I, I definitely f- uh, found some kindred spirits in that scene.
0: Let's hear a little bit of alternative polka. One of my guests, Weird Al Yankovic's legendary polka medleys of popular music. This of the popular music of the early 1990s. Get back. It's me, Jesse. Joining me here is my beautiful wife, Teresa, the Development Director of MaximumFund.org. Hi, Teresa. Hi, Jesse. Thank you for joining me. Anytime. (laughs) Literally anytime. We share a house and we both work here. (laughs) All of the folks out there that are listening, I think, have already spent some time listening to the interview, thinking about how important the sound of young America is to them and how much they want desperately to visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. But there is one missing piece. That is thank you gifts. The real reason people donate to support public radio. Um, every single person who donates to support uh, MaximumFun.org during the pledge drive gets our special uh, Max Fun kit. Uh, that's some stickers, a Max Fun Club membership card that is hand letterpress printed in San Francisco, uh, plus access to special uh, donor-only content, including special episodes of Judge Sean Hodgman, Jordan Jesse Go, Stop Podcasting Yourself, My Brother, My Brother and Me, and special Rift short films, uh, just like the one that me and Jordan made last year that some folks might have seen on the web or on their uh, DVDs. Uh, by Stop Podcasting Yourself, My Brother, My Brother, and Me, and a brand new one by me and Jordan. All of that, plus access to the Sound of Young America's special donor's feed that gives you the Sound of Young America as it appears on the radio uh, every week in super high-quality sound. That's for literally everyone that donates. Um, But we've got lots of levels from $2 a month to $200 a month. At the $10 a month level, you become a friend of the family. You get an Eco Bags brand canvas tote bag. We've got five different designs. Um, Teresa, you went out and tested all the different bags. You were measuring different bags with uh, tape recorders. Not tape recorders, (laughs) tape Tape measures. measures. Thank you.
3: I wanted to find the right size that would work for everyone for grocery shopping and errands and things like that. It couldn't be too big. It couldn't be too small.
0: Right. It could. It had to be unisex. It had to be both genders appropriate. Yeah. Just something that looks sharp. And there's there's different designs for every one of our shows at the ten dollar a month level. At the twenty dollar a month level, you join the Diamond Friendship Circle. Uh, you get the tote bag plus you get this cool USB drive that Teresa picked out. It is made out of wood. Features our logo on it. And uh, contains handpicked episodes of all of the uh podcasts that we've each of us each of us hosts has gone into our archives and picked our absolute favorites and put them on this USB drive. And there's plenty of room for your portable document storage needs.
3: That's right. <laughs> and then at the thirty five dollar a month level. Um, You get our awesome nerd emergency kit.
0: Now, look, a a lot of public radio stations out there will tell you that this whole thing about the world ending in 2012 is wrong. Well, we're the only ones brave enough to tell you that it's right. And if you give us money, we can help. We're the only ones brave enough to say that, Teresa.
3: (laughs) That's right. (laughs) And we've filled this nerd emergency kit with everything that we imagine you might need for the apocalypse.
0: Presuming that you're a geek or a nerd. Yeah. At least kind of a geek and a nerd.
3: Or at least you wear glasses.
0: Look, you know how to listen to a podcast that basically makes you a geek.
3: (laughs) One thing that it does have is an Eton self-powered AMFM weather radio that... It has a built-in flashlight and solar charging, so you can charge your phone. You can charge anything with a USB cable. Um, It also comes with our MaxFun USB drive, so if you get super bored in your emergency, you have something to do. Um, And it comes with all kinds of other helpful tools and also just fun stuff like astronaut ice cream.
0: Absolutely. Like, everything that you need to survive this apocalypse, whether uh, one of... I don't know what the apocalypse is going to be like, but I presume that Mel Gibson's going to be out there in an evil robot car uh, shooting people in an anti Semitic, uh, slightly crazed type of way. This is sort of a combination of what I've learned from TMZ and the movie Mad Max. They sort of run together in my head. But anyway, you're going to need, like, this credit card survival tool. This thing is, like, the size of a credit card. It's made of stainless steel. It has a can opener, a knife edge, a screwdriver, a ruler, a, ca- a cap opener, a four-position wrench, a butterfly wrench, a saw blade, a direction ancillary indication. I don't even know what that is. And to top it all off, this thing has a key ring hole. Um, you also get a graph paper, a mechanical pencil, a white surgical tape in case you need to uh, repair your eyeglasses. Uh, After the apocalypse, a 20 sided die in case you need to play Dungeons and Dragons. After the apocalypse, dinosaur band aids. And as you mentioned, Teresa, should you become thirsty or hungry when uh, you're roaming the playa, you get astronaut ice cream and tang.
3: So it's pretty great. That's what you get if you donate at the $35 a month level. You'll also, of course, get the tote bag and the Max Fun pack. Um, And then going up from there, we do have some really great gifts at the $50 a month level, the $100 a month level, and the $200 a month level.
0: AKA the Thorn Family Blondie Brigade level, the Jesse's Golden Eagles level, and the Jordan's Platinum Angels level.
3: You can check that out on our website. Go to MaximumFun.org and click on Donate. And it's super easy and super fast. Um, You sign up with your credit card. Um, It's an automatic monthly renewal, so you don't have to Think about it again unless you're ready to cancel at some point, in which case you simply cancel.
0: It's all online at maximumfund.org. It's all super easy. We've got a brand new credit card processing system. You don't even have to futz around with PayPal. Just go to maximumfund.org slash donate right now. It's maximumfund.org slash donate. Let's get back to that interview. So tell me a little bit about What inspires you to create not one of your parodies, but one of your original tunes? Do you usually start with a joke? Do you start with a melody? I uh, usually try
1: to uh, match what I think is a good subject matter for a song with a genre that may actually be completely inappropriate for it. Uh, I, I've got a notebook somewhere that has a list of artists and, and genres and musical styles uh, on one side of a column and a lot of uh, ideas for songs on the other side. And sometimes I'll draw lines between the two uh, and try to match match them up in a way that I think would be a, a sort of a, a humorous juxtaposition. Um, and, and the bands are generally uh, bands that I admire greatly because, you know, uh, it would be You know, difficult for me to do a style parody or a pastiche of a band that I didn't really uh, enjoy and respect because it involves really kind of putting on their skin, really getting into their their song catalog and trying to figure out the idiosyncrasies and and, you know, what exactly makes them tick. And that that involves a lot of research. So I I generally wouldn't do that with uh, with an artist that uh, that I didn't like.
0: Let's hear one of those style parodies. Uh, This is Pancreas. It's a song that uh, my guest Weird Al Yankovic recorded in the style of Brian Wilson and the Beach Boys.
2: I'm always thinking about it I don't know what I'd do without it I love, I really love my pancreas My spleen just doesn't matter Don't really care about my bladder But I don't leave home without my pancreas
0: My pancreas is always there for me It's really kind of a pretty song. Well, thanks. <laughs> um, one of the prettier pancreas songs. What is your greatest goal when you're writing a song? Do you feel like you're writing a song to be as funny as it can be? Or do you feel like you're trying to do something else?
1: I think being funny is probably the biggest priority. Um, I mean, some of my songs uh, aren't like laugh out loud funny. Some of them are just a little strange or a little quirky. Uh, and I like doing those as well. But th- those usually get uh, reactions from fans like, that wasn't funny. <laughs> so I always have to remember like, Yo, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm supposed to be funny. So yeah, that, that's probably number one. But at the same time, I, I want to you know um, indulge my musicality and, and do stuff that I think people will, will enjoy strictly on a musical level as well.
2: As I walk through the valley where I harvest my grain I take a look at my wife and realize she's very plain But that's just perfect for an Amish like me You know I shun fancy things like electricity At 4.30 in the morning I'm milking
0: cows In the 1990s you started to do um, parody songs of uh, hip-hop records And to that point um, most of the parodies of hip-hop that were out there were, from the perspective of of a person that actually likes rap music, very sort of disrespectful and sort of ham-fisted and reduced this genre of music to a kind of insulting, childlike, sing-song baloney, which... (laughs) Which spoke to the parodists' sort of misunderstanding of it as a thing in the world. Are you talking about rap Rodney or rap Reagan? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, there were, but there were dozens and dozens yeah, of were. those records, um, and I didn't think any of them were much of anything.
1: Most of them were based on the joke of "Isn't this funny?" There's a white guy trying to rap.
0: Yeah, exactly. So when you first approached hip hop um, in songs like Amish Paradise, which was the early 1990s, uh, uh, and a huge hit. Another huge hit that I, I remember from my own childhood. Um, what was your What was your perspective on what had been done and what could be done? I try to just basically
1: ignore most of those uh, examples that you, that you mentioned. Uh, the, the primary joke uh, was not that, you know, here's some, like, goofy white guy trying to do a kind of a, a cool musical genre. I basically respected the music and treated it like I would any other uh, pop song and, and uh, tried to emulate the style as closely as I could. And I tried to make the jokes uh, be jokes that were contained in the actual lyrics as opposed to,
0: like, you know, isn't this crazy what I'm doing? You know, one thing that I was always impressed by is that uh, you're really not a bad rapper. Well, thanks. <laughs> and, and rapping is kind of hard. Um, I know that I could not successfully rap. Um, tell me a little bit about the work that's involved in, in achieving the level of competence that is needed in order to make a successful parody. Um, you know, I that's a hard one to answer
1: because I I don't know uh th- thank you first for for the compliments, but I I don't know where the skill comes from. I think it comes from just a lot of unwarranted confidence in myself <laughs> and just just uh just the uh uh desire to just try anything and and uh keep doing it until I <laughs> I get competent at it. Um, so I, I don't know. I mean, I never certainly considered myself a, a rapper, uh, but uh, I, I am a musician, so in terms of rap, I can figure out, like, okay, there's, uh, you know, these syllables need to be eighth notes, and this one has to be a quarter note, and I figure it out musically, and, and then I just give it
0: my best shot. Let's play a little bit of uh, White and Nerdy, one of your more recent uh, hip-hop parody hits.
2: Think I'm just too white and nerdy. I'm just too wide and nerdy. Wide and nerdy. Really? really my class, there at MIT, got skills. I'm a champion of DD. MC Escher, that's my favorite MC. Keep your 40 out, just have an Earl Grey tea. My rims never spin. To the contrary, you'll find that they're quite stationary. All of my action figures are cherry. Stephen Hawking's in my library. My mindspace page is all totally pimped out. Got people begging for my top eight spaces. Yo, I know pi to a thousand places. Ain't got no grills, but I still wear braces. I order all of my sandwiches with mayonnaise. I'm a whiz mind a Minesweeper. I can play for days. Once you see my sweet moves, you're gonna stay amazed. My famous move is so fast, I set the place ablaze. There's no killer rap I haven't run. At Pascal, while well, I'm number one. Do vector calculus just for fun? I ain't got a gap, but I got a soldering gun. Happy Days is my favorite theme song. I can sure kick your butt in a game of ping pong. I'll ace any trivia quiz you bring on. Fluent in JavaScript as well as claim on my
0: That was white and nerdy from my guest, my guest Weird Al Yankovic. Um, do you like to listen to parody? Is, is parody a form that, like, intrigues you as a consumer of media?
1: Uh, I try not to listen to a lot of other parody artists. I mean, there are a lot on YouTube, uh, and uh, I, I'm aware that they exist. Uh but I, I, try not, I try not to expose myself to that because I don't want to be unduly influenced. Uh, I try to be aware just because, you know, I, I wouldn't want to tread ground that's been tread before uh, if at all possible. That, that's becoming more and more difficult every year given the nature of portals like YouTube. Um, but yeah, I, I still enjoy comedy music. I still enjoy uh, uh, satire. But um, I, I try not to expose myself to a lot of other actual parody songs.
0: When I was in college, one of my uh, professors was Tom Lara, who's one of the great, funny musicians, Um, although he recorded only two LPs, I think, if I remember correctly. Maybe maybe three. Maybe three? Yeah. Okay. So he was one of my professors, and he was a a very funny, very crabby guy. Um, He he earned the right to be crabby. (laughs) Um, In fact, I believe his direct quote about uh, why he never made any more records was, what's the use of having laurels if you don't rest on them? Right. (laughs) I I think he also said at one point that uh, he thought that satire was dead after Henry Kissinger won the
1: Nobel Peace Prize.
0: (laughs) So uh, Tom Lara, it was a class on American musical theater. And at one point he was talking about songwriting. And he said that since I don't remember what his cutoff was, but I think it might have been 1960. He said there were two songwriters that he liked. One of them was Stephen Sondheim, who, you know, you're going you're gonna to have a hard time finding a lot of disagreements right, right. on Stephen Sondheim. The other one was Randy Newman. And the thing that he liked about Randy Newman was uh, not only that he was funny, but also that he w- wrote songs with... Each of which had its own distinct perspective, its own little world. Um... And I, I feel like some of the songs that you've recorded more recently and released have had a little bit more of that, uh, of, uh, a little bit more narrative, a little bit more pathos even sometimes. Hmm. And I wonder if that was a self-conscious choice. No, it's certainly
1: nothing that I'd done uh, consciously. Um, that, that's interesting. But I, I've always been a big fan of Randy Newman, and uh, I admire a lot of his songs, especially the ones that have the what he calls the distrustful narrator, <laughs> where he's obviously, you know, the, uh, the real Randy Newman certainly wouldn't be voicing opinions like the ones in the song, but, I mean, he has created a character, and, and the song is in the voice of the character. So I, I think a lot of my songs are that way as well. I mean, there are certainly some very... Uh, <laughs> questionable people that are are uh, the uh, the first person narrators of some of my uh, songs. So um, I, I think I probably got that idea from Randy.
0: I want to play a little bit of a song that you released on the internet that will, I think, eventually become part of uh, your new album, which is coming out later this year. As we record this, it's called Skipper Dan, and it's a really it's a really uh, uncharacteristically sweet sad it's bittersweet yeah version of your typical sense of humor here's Weird Al Yankovic and and Skipper Dan
2: I was sure But Dan is the name And I'm doing 34 shows every day every time it's the same Look at those hippos that wiggling their ears Just like they've done For the last 50 years Now I'm laughing at my own jokes But I'm crying inside Cause I'm working on The Jumble Cruise ride
0: Tell me a little bit about what inspired you to write that song about Broken dreams
1: <laughs> I, I think that I was actually on a jungle cruise ride with my family at Disneyland, and uh, the skipper made just some kind of offhanded comment uh, about his failed acting career and, uh, and a light bulb immediately went off, and I thought well that 's a whole song right there. I mean, I could, could kind of visualize this whole <laughs> sad character 's life full of broken dreams, and you know again, the skipper Dan is not one of my really laugh-out-loud kind of funny song, but I thought it was a really interesting uh, uh, character study and uh, something that uh, that I enjoyed uh, taking on.
0: Were there things that you sort of left by the wayside, your own dreams that you abandoned in order to pursue this amazing career as a parodist?
1: Not at all. I'm living the dream. This is—I <laughs> I feel, you know, I—, I uh, I can't imagine anything else I'd rather be doing, frankly. I mean, uh, you know, I, I've, uh, comedy and, and music have always been my passions, and uh, uh, I still kind of can't believe that I've been able to uh, make a living at it all these years.
0: Even though the theme of your new children's book, When I Grow Up, is the panoply of dreams that a child has for his life, uh, of which he's obviously may well have to pick just a couple.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, within the context of of uh, being Weird Al, I've been able to not only you know do, be a singer and songwriter, uh, but I've been able to do a be a director and a producer and and a writer, and I've done movies and I've done a lot of things uh, you know within within that context. So uh, uh, I, I feel like I I have uh, you know had a lot of uh, you know, various things going on in my life, much like Billy had going on in his head in the
0: book. Are you surprised that now, as you essentially enter middle age? You are not only still in the midst of a career, but essentially as successful, as high in the music industry now as you have ever been.
1: That's a great feeling because most artists that have been lucky enough to have a career that's lasted a few decades, uh, when they do their live shows and they say, here's something from the new album, that's usually the bathroom break. That's like, okay, uh, <laughs> we'll be back in 20 minutes. Um, and I'm, I'm very fortunate that, uh, you know, every album that I put out is as vital and as popular as anything in my back catalog. Um, my last album was ostensibly the, my most popular album of my career. It's, uh, it's the first one to chart in the Billboard Top 10. Uh, white and nerdy uh, surpassed eat it as being my most popular single it sold over a million legal downloads and i don't know how many illegal ones but i'm quite a few i bet uh, but i mean it, it's a, a pretty heady thing to realize that this far into my career uh,
0: i'm actually sort of peaking well I, I sure appreciate you taking the time to be on the sound of young america al it's it's something we've always wanted to do it's really great to have you on the well, show it's great to be here thanks so much Weird Al Yankovic's new album comes out this summer or so. His best-selling, yes, that's right, New York Times' best-selling children's book is called When I Grow Up. Okay, guys, I hope you enjoyed that episode of The Sound of Young America as much as I did. If you've been waiting until the show was over to donate, now is the time. Maximumfun.org slash donate. Ready? Steady. Steady go! Production of The Sound of Young America is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com.